This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 399, December the 3rd, 1997. This evening, uh, Andrew Sandlin is absent, uh, by the way. He uh, left today to speak to a student group in Southern California. But Douglas Murray, Mark Rushdooney, and I are privileged to have as our guest a very, very prized friend, the Reverend Dennis Rowe. Now, Dennis is, in my mind, a very important person. He has a passion for missions. He is head of the missions committee of the uh, Reformed Church in the U.S., the whole subject of missions is urgently important today. There is a race underway with aggressive missionary activity by non-Christian groups. In Africa, Peter Hammond has said, it is Islam, Marxism, and witchcraft that are out to destroy Christianity. In other continents, in many instances, it is Islam still and Marxism. Wherever you go into the world, there are today an extensive uh, number, a very great number of Christians who are murdered, sold as slaves in the Sudan actually crucified. And the horrifying fact of our time is the indifference of the churches. A very fine book has been written on the subject by Paul Marshall, Their Blood Cries Out, The Worldwide Tragedy of Modern Christians Who Are Dying for Their Faith. The interesting thing is that Paul Marshall is not a Christian. But he has written about this because he feels the future of freedom is at stake. The too many things which the world enjoys now are products of Christianity. And to see the faith shattered, destroyed, mass murders, and so on is more than he can take. Well... Dennis Rowe is a man who has a passion for missions. To hear him speak on the subject is a privilege. Dennis, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Rush, Denny. It's, Rush, please. Well, it's my privilege uh, to be here. You're going to have to work on the Rush because I was raised by a Southern father who uh, he ingrained it in me to uh, call anyone uh, with respect by... Uh, Mr. This or Dr. This, and so that's a little hard for me, but uh, you're uh, a father in the Lord to me, I've said to you before, and uh, I thank you for your encouragement, and especially seeing how the the Word of God, and in particular the Law of God, is uh, so relevant to every sphere of life, and how we need to understand that and apply it, and especially in this field of missions, where so many of uh, 
the mission fields uh, are want to find good missionaries who understand that. Uh, in fact, today it's uh, almost the opposite. You can't uh, touch the culture that you're going to really serve as a missionary. That's the sacred cow, so to say. Mm-hmm. So I want to thank you for your contribution, even to my own thinking and my own life. Tell us the name of the group and the scope of its work. Anything that you want us to know. Well, I'm the general secretary for Westminster Biblical Missions. This coming year we celebrate our 25th anniversary. Uh, Westminster Biblical Missions was founded in Pennsylvania by two Presbyterian missionaries who were left stranded on the mission field by a certain denomination I won't mention. Um, I will add, uh, I, just to make note, I'm no longer serving on my own denomination's uh, foreign missions uh, committee. I'm on the home missions committee. I'm also a home missionary planning a work in Grass Valley, California. But with Westminster Biblical Missions, I became involved some 10 years ago, serving on their board. I was thoroughly impressed by uh, reading the newsletters from their two founding missionaries, Dr. Robert Rapp and Reverend Earl Pinckney, and they were just tremendous of uh, their theological content and their critique of the world and, in particular, their mission field and applying the Word of God to every area of life. And um, in God's providence at a meeting in Philadelphia at Westminster Seminary on a coffee break I met this missionary and I said oh I said where are you uh, serving and he said in South Korea and I said have you ever heard of Dr. Robert Rapp he said he sure had that he was the man Uh (laughs) I was staying there talking to Dr. Rapp and he just grabbed a hold of me basically and got me involved in Westminster Biblical Missions that I had only heard about before that and for three years served on the board and in 1990 I became general secretary which means I'm involved with all of the fields we have um, mission fields in Hungary, South Korea, Mexico and in Pakistan four main areas that we're involved in uh, possibly even India through a contact that I've now made through Calcedon and your publication having had recently in September an article about Westminster Biblical Missions. As General Secretary, I'm, as I say, I'm involved with all of the mission fields and um, involved with their oversight, so to say, as the board is not meeting most of the time. We do have a board of directors that's made up of Presbyterian Reformed uh, ministers and laymen, if we want to use that terminology but who are thoroughly committed to uh, a reformational approach to missions. And by that, to see, again, how the Word of God applies to the whole of life. And that the missionary recognizes that when he goes into another culture, that he's confronted often with a complete culture that's anti-Christian. And he's not just dealing in one small area, in the area of soteriology it's not just salvation as we think of it only with a man's soul but in its entirety so we have a reformational approach and uh, that's carried out in that our approach is to have an educational ministry with the nationals that are in 
those uh, countries in the foreign mission field. We have in South Korea a theological school and college now with uh, up to a thousand students enrolled in a given year. And uh, we teach the same to these students so that when they graduate, our graduates now, I believe the number is close to 600 new churches have been planted by our graduates alone. And as they're going out and training other faithful people. But our missionaries are not taking the approach where they go and try to be the evangelist or the pastor to the people on the field, but really to find faithful people there and work with them to train the nationals to do the work of the ministry. That's the case in South Korea, which is probably our most mature work, that and our theological school in Pakistan. And it's pretty much self-supporting, so much so that recently they embarked upon a $4 million project that they themselves are um, raising the money for, that is, for the Korean nationals. Mm-hmm. Although I don't know what the recent financial debacle has uh, done as, you know, in regarding that. As you know, in South Korea, it's in turmoil right now, the whole banking, banking scandal that's come about. But they're... Um, Work there is to, you know, train their own people by Koreans that we know are faithful. It's still a part of Westminster Biblical Missions because we've been battling with the government powers in South Korea. Our schools are noted for not um, being involved in the modern ecumenical movement. That is where you would have joint worship services with theological liberals, Unitarians, or what have you. And for that we pay a price, and especially our stand against the World Council of Churches and many of its activities. And they are enmeshed in the governments wherever the World Council of Churches is involved. And so they have withheld a license from our school all these many years, even though it's obviously from 25 years of existence a credible work with a thousand students. Um, Just recently we've had some breakthrough in that, so we're thankful for that thankful for men like Jesse Helms who have come to bat for us and even uh, kept them from shutting our school down at times. And then in Pakistan, that work is uh, well over 20 years old, and it's um, divided, actually, we speak of two fields, the one in Lahore, Pakistan, which is um, a major city in the north uh, east of Pakistan near the Indian border. And there we have a theological school, the the Presbyterian Theological Seminary of Pakistan. And we also um, have a um, day school now that has developed in the last six years. And this is sort of like a wildfire for the work. Um, Through the vision of uh, one of our um, people, in particular it was the director's wife, she has since gone to be with the Lord. She um, saw the children in the area where we live, or where we live, excuse me, where the school is, and um, the area there is a slum area. It's uh, an area of uh, near Lahore called Yohanabad. You can pick up on the name. It sounds like John, Johan. I mean, that's an area where the Christians are forced to live. And by Christians there, they're, they're mostly Roman Catholics in that community. 
And she just had a burden for these children because their parents are just trying to exist. The income in Pakistan is extremely low. Average person makes some $400 a year. And so they go off to, to scrape on an existence and they leave their children. The children are playing in the gutters. Um, it's just open sewage in Pakistan. It's, uh, the physical conditions there are just terrible. Um, you know, open uh, sewer holes, uh, people as far as even their own personal waste, it's just out in the open. And so you have all of that and on a massive scale in the city area. And so her heart was breaking for these little children, some of them naked and half naked and filthy. And she asked her husband, who is our director there, Sadar Ahmedin, if she couldn't have a few children over for a Bible study. And that led from a Bible study of 12 children teaching them a Bible story to now Calvin Academy after six years with 900 students, mm -hmm. K through 8, um, with a faculty of 17 teachers. And when I was there just recently, I cut the ribbon on the third campus that we've now opened. So we went from the main campus, which was located at our seminary property, to opening a second campus, which has 150 students, and a third campus where should have that number or more. So that's uh, uh, an exciting thing that's going on. Here's Pakistan, a Muslim country. It's uh, called an Islamic Republic. And of course, you've heard some of the recent things that have happened there with the murder of U.S. citizens. And yet here is God just marvelously blessing this work. Uh, because it's an opportunity for these children otherwise they would never have. The Christians there are suffering. They're forced to live in slum conditions. And so um, by our reaching out to them and providing this education, as they say, it's an opportunity they otherwise would never have. Being in a Muslim nation, they are suppressed. They're not given the um, normal opportunities, as few as they are even for the Muslim people. And... Um, are some grim persecutions underway in Pakistan, are there not? Yes, there are. Even while I was there recently, uh, on the front page of the newspaper in Lahore, it even recorded the tragic story of a young Muslim boy who wanted to read the New Testament. And when his neighbors found out about it, they came in and beat him to death. And I don't know if that story even made it here to the United States. No. And, you know, I was, the first time I went to Pakistan was in 1989, and the conditions were much better. At that time, of course, Pakistan was receiving money from the United States in aid, um, most of it being filtered off to who knows where. But um, the people overall were friendlier towards the U.S., but because of Pakistan's refusal to sign the non proliferation treaty for nuclear arms we withdrew the aid and so they become much more hostile and they blame uh, the religious leaders like to blame all their problems on the United States the great Satan as we've come to be known by many and the Christians because of that suffer and anybody associated with the US at times um, 
Another thing that we do is we have Bible literacy centers. We have over 30 centers throughout, and they're mostly all in the slum areas because, again, that's where the Christians are forced to live. And uh, we work with local pastors to encourage them to begin this literacy program for their people. And they teach them to read, and we use the Bible as our uh, primer. And... Uh, you know, that's that's wonderful to see and to go and to witness that. When I visited, the pastors would, you know, demonstrate their work by having their students come, little children reciting long passages of the Bible they had memorized, and many of them coming to show that they could read. And uh, that's tremendous to see. Because in Pakistan, the uh, illiteracy is 75% of the people, and among the Christians, it's even higher because of them being suppressed and not allowed the average opportunity. So we do that work as well. And then recently on our seminary property, the main campus, uh, we've opened, or we're in the process of building, we've opened the dispensary in the sense that we are helping people periodically, but we even have a facility now that we're finishing the building process so that the people in the slum area can have some access to medical care. Um, which, again, they otherwise wouldn't have. I mean, for $10, the lack of $10, you could die there because they just don't have the money to go for any medical care. And then if you went to the hospital, <laughs> you know, the conditions there are so terrible that, uh, you know, your survival rate even in the hospital would be very poor, especially, you know, compared to our standards. Because the way of life there is one that's corrupt. Uh, it is a, a Muslim nation. And bribery is the rule of the day. And theft is the, also what is ordinary to the people. You, um, the only way to describe it, I describe it um, physically from a book written long ago and by a, a British citizen, he described India and Pakistan as one big open latrine. And that's not being uncharitable. And spiritually, as just a land of lawlessness. It's just lawless. Anything goes if you have enough rupees, as they call it. And you just see that, and you can sense it. As I traveled over there, some over 12,000 miles, you could just feel your security of being in a country that still abides law to a great degree compared to them, to going into where you get off the airplane and you have to have guards with Uzis and, and automatic weapons protecting you getting off the airplane, to realize that that's just the way of life it is there. Um, go ahead, you have a question. Well, of the countries... Uh, you're involved in. Is Pakistan the worst as far as persecution is concerned? Yes. Of the countries that we're involved in, of course, uh, we have a work in Mexico also. There's been uh, some recently for Presbyterian uh, ministers and workers down there, but it hasn't affected our work so much among the Tarascan Indians. But Pakistan, uh, I've traveled the world, and it... Uh, is the worst country I've ever experienced, and and in talking to people, it's it's probably 
one of, if not the worst, nation in the world. Uh, they had um, a poll somewhere or, or some kind of rating someone was telling me about. And uh, they said that of the two worst countries in the world, it was Nigeria and Pakistan rated as, as the worst. My comment was the only reason Pakistan was second place is because they cheated on the test. <laughs> because bribery is the way of life. The police stand there waiting for bribes with their hands out. They stop the vehicles and, you know, it doesn't matter whether or not you've broken a law or not. You're going to have to pay them something. Yeah. To the hatred for Christianity in Pakistan, because over the last few years we've heard of a number of incidents of uh, Christians being attacked in Pakistan, even native Pakistanis, as you mentioned, like this little boy. Um, what is behind that? Is this a hatred of Christianity uh, because it's opposed to Islam? Is it a hatred of Christianity as representing the West? Um, is it a move towards a, a more militant fundamentalist type Islam? Um, well, that certainly is a, a major influence. I mean, Islam is not a peaceful religion contrary to what the the uh, clerics that uh, we get on uh, our television screens here in the U.S. I mean, you look at the history of it. Muhammad, when he uh, left Mecca and went to Medina and got his following, came back and slaughtered everybody in his home village. And it's been built upon the sword. They are promised uh, you know, a great reward for killing you know, the infidel, and we are infidels as Christians because they believe that we are, you know, idolaters, we're worshiping three gods. That's what they're taught, and it's just hammered into them. It, it, it's, an, it's a religion built upon ignorance as well. I don't think they really want their people to prosper in Pakistan. I think, you know, the way it seems to me is they really... Um, you benefit from the people being illiterate because they have on all their mosques these loud speakers and they it's almost like they're haranguing the people they'll, they'll get on there and go with these long messages and even though I don't understand that much Urdu you know it's just like haranguing over and over and over but whatever they say you see the, the average Pakistani takes as being, you know, the truth because he doesn't have access to read material and to really examine the facts of an issue. And so they do that. These religious leaders blame, you know, a lot of the problems upon the Christians, you know, sort of sounds like Nero Caesar that, you know, back with the Romans, you know, blame your problem, problems upon the Christians. And then incites, uh, you know, hatred in that regard. I did see uh, while I was there um, private footage of the village that was burned to the ground. Over 300 homes destroyed in a Christian village because the father-in-law of one of our professors lived in that village. And it was just terrible. They came through and burned everything, burned their automobiles, killed their animals, and then robbed everything as well. It all came about because a Christian fellow was arrested by a policeman and when he was being taken out he asked if he could get his Bible and the Muslim policeman took his Bible and threw it on the, gr on the floor and stomped on it 
And uh, uh, you and I may not take as much offense about that, but for a Muslim, you don't even set the Quran on the floor, let alone put the Quran on the ground and stomp on it. I mean, that's a great offense to them. They would kill you over it. And so that's why he did that towards the Christian. And so the Christian fellow reported that to his superior, and this fellow was just disciplined for it. It wasn't fired or anything, but disciplined to some degree, you know, whether it was a couple of days off without pay or whatever. And that's what incited the riot. They told uh, the people, the religious leaders did, that this poor Muslim policeman was being, you know, persecuted. And they came in and destroyed the entire village. Destroying the villages and killing Christians is called by the Muslims of Pakistan communal cleansing. Right. Here is a, a note in David Marshall. Uh, his uh, Their blood cries out. I quote, Beyond specific attacks, the situation of Pakistan's two to three million Christians is wretched. The Frontier Post reports terrorizing Christians with the blasphemy laws is only one aspect of this communal cleansing. This year there have been incidents of raids on Christian villages by communally incited armed hordes who plundered their houses and dishonored their women, kidnapping of young girls and their forcible conversion to Islam is another aspect. Unquote. Now, this is a commonplace thing there and no punishment or nothing more than a bare slap on the wrist is meted out to the Muslims, often, as you indicated, police officers who participate or lead such activities. You would be almost afraid to call the police. And uh, you do. You have a certain fear of them when you're there because they're not trustworthy at all. In fact, on my first trip, two of our missionaries got mugged by a policeman. But <laughs> that's another story. It just is lawlessness. And that's, the, you know, it's really the nature of Islam. It, yes. And, of course, the only way they can prosper is to have total state control and arm control. And uh, you see that, too. You see the, the military is very present there. But for the Christian people, the, the suffering is tremendous. And that has been very difficult for me in making this most recent trip, is just you know, bringing that back with me and realizing that. And uh, the frustration of you know not being able to help them more in going there i realized i couldn't preach the gospel to the muslims um not just because it's against the law but because they've shut it off effectively that you can't because they don't want to hear it and the religious leaders control it i was reminded of paul's commendation to philemon that he had refreshed the hearts of the saints I really saw that as my ministry while I was there. I spoke some 11, 12 times to encourage the hearts of God's people. And you, you talk about the contrast, too, between the Muslims and the Christians there. As I went into one church building to speak, 
and you walk down this um, path to it on the right side of the of the of the road where all these mud and clay houses lined up and that's where the Christians live and right across the street were these mansions and uh, of course uh, there are many poor Muslims too so you could certainly find clay houses they live in but it is a great contrast because you don't find the Christians being able to prosper like that they are certainly suppressed when I went in to preach I was preaching in John 14 and uh, John 14:15 in particular that Jesus said if you love me then keep my commandments and I wanted to encourage God's people there how important it is for them to understand that the law of God is to be written on our hearts and that we are not to be a lawless people and not to give in to the lawlessness around them that this is part of our testimony to Christ and uh, his kingship in our lives but you know the first part of John 14 as you come you look at that text and it begins and the Lord is telling us that he goes to his father's house and in my father's house are many mansions and it came to me as I stood there before these people and you know obviously very poor you know and, and very uh, you know humble means that uh, living in dirt houses I said to them I said you know there are many people in this ho this life who live in dirt houses but Christ has promised that you shall live in a mansion for all eternity and there are many people who live in mansions that are going to live in dirt houses yes even worse than that for all eternity before we continue I'd like to give you a little information if you're interested in getting more material on this uh, organization, write to Westminster Biblical Missions Incorporated, Dennis E. Rowe, R-O-E, General Secretary, P.O. Box 602, Carbondale, Pennsylvania, 18407, or telephone 916-273-HOPE, H-O-P-E. Now, for email, Mark, will you read that email? My eyes are not that good. W-B-M-I-N-C at N-C-C-N dot net. It stands for Westminster Biblical Missions Incorporated, WBMINC at nccn.net. That's our web page that I put up where you can get uh, information on all the different fields that we have, as well as uh, history, some biographies of our missionaries, mm -hmm. our philosophy of missions, um, and all the information about the mission uh, mm -hmm. is up there now. In fact, we even put the uh, current newsletters of our missionaries, so if people want to stay current, they can get that material. There are two areas in the world today where the forces of Islam are particularly oppressive. In other areas, they're almost as bad, but these two are standouts, Pakistan and the Sudan. 
and the rising temperament of Islam is a hardening of their position and a greater hostility to Christianity so that uh, we probably face our grimmest uh, times of testing in the days ahead. I think it's important that Christians know about this and that they be in prayer for those who are at work all over the world, especially in Islamic countries. Dennis, do you want to continue now? Yes, I, I think that's just absolutely necessary. Um, you might say a wake-up call for the church yeah. here. And how uh, this, is, um, this is an area of battle right now. And it's going to get worse unless um, God intervenes and he doesn't do it in some abstract way. He uses his church. Okay. We're called to be the salt of the earth. Yes. And um, I'm concerned that in this area right now, that salt doesn't have much savor. Yes. That we are capitulating as a people, certainly as a nation. It's almost as if uh, Muslims have a favored status mm -hmm. for immigration here. Yes. I don't want to mention, I'm almost... Five million of them here in this country. And yet I have one example is I have a young man, a Christian who has a full scholarship provided for his school. I don't want to get too much into the details, lest, you know, harm come. Mm -hmm. I'm not that concerned about too many of your listeners, but uh, he can't get a visa. Mm -hmm. That's commonplace, we and, find. And we want him to come because we need someone. Uh, Reverend Den, our administrator, is 65 years old. Now, for us, we say, well, it's commonplace to still be working, but the average lifespan of a Pakistani is 57. He's eight years beyond. That's like being, in, you, you know, in your 80s. And his wife has already passed away. She was only 57, or the, same, or the age that was common for um, the lifespan there. And we need someone to be groomed to take over and uh, so it's so important for this young man to be able to come here. And we sit before this um, officer for immigration and say, here we have a young man, full scholarship. He will cost this country not a dime. We have a businessman who's willing to pay everything for him and will not allow him to come. Why? I don't have to give you a reason is the answer. Yes, we brought over a very fine young man from Scotland to do some work here and uh, he saw people who were really uh, not pleasant to be around get their visas and come in and year in and year out he tried and it took forever before he was able to get permission to come here as a student at no charge to this country. It's almost uh, you're, you're favored if you, um, you know, have AIDS or you're coming from yeah. some, uh, you know. We have become in our various departments, including immigration, anti-Christian. 
and the Christian community does not seem to be upset or to even care about it. I think the reason is that they don't know about it. Um, You know, it's been said that the American people are ignorant but not stupid. But we have a media in this country that uh, through disinformation, misinformation, or no information has made the American people ignorant of what's going on in the world. And you can't make intelligent decisions without information. Uh, for instance, the the uh, answer that you got from the INS officer, uh, you get this kind of arrogance uh, all through the federal government. Uh, and even in local government, state government, you get the same kind of arrogance. Uh, you ask a legitimate question of a so-called public servant, which they no longer regard themselves as public servants. Uh, they're employees of the government and therefore not answerable to the people. Uh, they see themselves apart from the general population, from the people. They no longer see themselves as servants of the people. And uh, this arrogance is very widespread. Well, you, you also have the problem is because of the dominance in our government by non-Christians. Yes. So it seems they're not going to have, uh, you know, any concern for the missionaries because it really has to do with, you know, what it, what is the faith of the people? And the government should only, you know, is only responding or it should be responding to what that is. Well, I, you know, I work in the electronics business, and I've recently, well, not recently, but decided some time back, a couple of years ago, that I will only do business with Christian organizations. For instance, if I need some electronic equipment, and I call some supplier down in the Bay Area, and I find out that they're either Islamic or run by East Indians or something, I won't do business with them, because their attitude is, I mean, totally... Uh, uh, confrontational and abrasive. You ask them for uh, uh, technical information uh, or uh, uh, anything else, and their attitude is that they could care less whether you do business with them or not. So I have actively sought out businesses around the United States that are run by Christians, and even if it costs me more, I will do business with them. I order equipment from places in Tennessee and down in the Bible Belt and uh, one place in Chicago and uh, you know they're not afraid to say in their literature and so forth that they're a Christian uh, uh, organization uh, that the the owners and operators it's a Christian business and uh, I think more of that's going to have to happen. Well yeah to me uh, back to what I was saying what's evident about our government is because it has a non-Christian approach its world and life view, it capitulates to whatever the the religion is of the country it's dealing with. Mm-hmm. So it goes to Pakistan, yeah. well, what do the Muslims want? And this is what we're going to mm-hmm. follow. Rather than having a real faith of its own, a well, dynamic Christian faith. Where's the power? If you uh, you want to have the, the Muslims on your side, they won't really be on your side. At least you don't want to offend them because they're a powerful group. Christians aren't a powerful group, therefore they don't matter. Big mistake. It's a big mistake for us because we are letting the enemy into the camp. 
during the Gulf War, now in my congregation in Pennsylvania, I had a number of Pakistani families, obviously Christian families, but the other Pakistanis assumed that they were Muslim. And during the Gulf War, they were just cursing our nation, and they're U.S. citizens. But they're Muslim, and that's their real citizenship. Yes. That's, that's the allegiance. Mm -hmm. And they were cursing this nation under their breath. And, you know, now this may be radical for some, but I am of the opinion that no Muslim ought to be allowed to be, you know, a citizen of the United States. Because they cannot but lie when they swear allegiance to this country. You know, that uh, they, that is not their allegiance. And the only reason they're here is to get what they can get, to promote Islam. If they're really Muslims. I mean, you have liberal Muslims who really don't care. It's just traditional. But there are many who are not just, you know, just a tradition. It's a real, you know, faith to them. Most people today are unwilling to say anything unkind about Islam and Muslims even though their record over the centuries has been an incredibly evil one. And that evil record goes throughout this century. I know that hundreds of relatives of my father's generation were massacred by the Turks, Muslims. I know that this sort of thing is going on in different parts of the world and we are afraid to talk about it. That we have consistently refused to tell the truth about the Muslims in former Yugoslavia and their massacres, their brutalities. And in fact, we are insistent that in Bosnia were only 40% at best are Muslims, they must rule. We have created an independent Macedonia and so gerrymandered it to make sure it will be under Muslim rule. We are really aggressively pro-Islamic. I'd have to agree. I mean, that's the track record of the last uh, how many years? at least the last uh, six, if not ten years, yes. very aggressively yes. pro-Islamic. And naively, even before then, with the other administrations, we had our own government. Uh, it's because, I think, sadly, we, have, we do not have a vital faith here, Christian faith. Um, we need to pray to God. I mean, I encourage my congregation, my pastor, pray to God every day for a spiritual awakening. The basic faith of most Americans, whatever their church profession, is a sentimental humanism. Everybody is nice. Let's be nice to everybody. Because Christians are, in quotation marks, Christian America doesn't take their faith seriously. They assume that the Muslims don't either, and they aren't motivated by their faith. Mm -hmm. and that we can deal with them politically, economically, uh, diplomatically, instead of recognizing them as a faith in action. Well, you look at evangelicalism today. I mean, it's the, it's the four-letter word is confrontation. Mm -hmm. They don't want to confront anything. Yes. And if you're confrontational, oh, well, that's the opposite of being a Christian, so, we, so it's said. 
you know, we just have to smile and love everybody. And you can't contradict anyone. You can't get into an argument. That's the last thing you want to do. Well, then that means you don't believe much. If you're not willing to argue for it. We are regularly told that a Christian must not be judgmental. Ah. Even though most of the uh, sayings of our Lord in the New Testament are very plain and blunt condemnations of the leaders of the people, religious and political, of his day. And when he said, Judge not lest ye be judged, what he said was, With what measure ye meet out, the standard you use will be used against you. Therefore, as he tells us elsewhere, judge righteous judgment. We are to judge. You know, the it whole, must be righteous. The whole book of Proverbs is, if, if there's one book, is given so that we can discern between yes. good and evil. That we are people who can judge what is right and what is wrong. Yes. But um, the spirit of our age is to be politically correct, uh, you know, in the, in the church. And that's what you see today, whatever the mass is that goes with the flow. The last thing you want to do is to do anything that contradicts whatever the majority wants. Mm -hmm. And that's the heart of humanism. That's its yeah. dynamic, to go with the mass. And certainly our Lord didn't. And how many of our churches could he be in and be a member of? Mm -hmm. I've thought about that one often. Well, you know, we're, as a people, you know, we're, you know, inviting this to happen to us. So I'm reminded of Hezekiah when he brought in, you know, the Assyrians and to look at the, yes. at the temple and all its goodies. And that's what we're doing as a people, mm -hmm. with our own society, because that's why most people are here. And we've be, become what the Marxists always accused us of becoming, that's capitalist. Living only for money and wealth and pleasure. And, of course, the end result is hedonism. We need to pray for that spiritual awakening in, in, here and in Pakistan as well. You know, one of the things, that, just to see, I went through and preached through the Ten Commandments, and I had pastors come and say, I never heard that before. You know, Christian pastors in Pakistan, they said, you know, that we of all people, the example we need to set is not just to, you know, like here, hand somebody a track and tell them they need Jesus in their life. Yeah, they need <laughs> the totality of their life. They need Christ. And how he does that is by writing the law on your heart. And the law of God reaches every mm -hmm. aspect of life. God has something to say about it. And so you be careful to live in that manner. And I uh, went through, I actually went through each of the commandments and gave a brief exposition by it. And it was uh, well received. Well, one of our problems today is the unwillingness of people to hear anything that is unpleasant. They don't want to hear about the persecution of Christians. They don't want to hear about the problems. Uh, it's like, the people of Judea of whom the prophet said their constant uh, complaint was speak to us smooth things, mm -hmm. easy things. Butter us up. Don't uh, tell us hard truths. 
Yes, I'm afraid that's, uh, that is the case. Um, we want everything to, to be put into some kind of, um, psychological terminology and so that we can be helping one another in this, uh, type of emotional, you know, development or something. And this is the view of Christianity. Today, it's, it's just, uh, psychobabble that really rules in most of the churches. I was asked about, uh, oh, 25 years ago by a church of some prominence, a beautiful facility to go there for a series of, uh, weeks and to give, uh, whatever I felt was uh, important in a series of 10 or 12 Sunday evenings. I chose to start with the Ten Commandments. So I went into the first commandment and the second, and when I went there for the third commandment, that Sunday evening the uh, church officers met me to say this would be the last uh, such service. Because, and this was their term, uh, the Ten Commandments are too controversial. <laughs> oh my. Yeah, it should be basic to Christian living and understanding. It's how we love God and how we love our neighbor. They want to talk about love and we do need to talk about love. We need to talk about love in God's terms. Spiritual pep talks is about all most people want. But you know, you know, looking at it in a, in a good way, I think that, that, um, still that this people, you know, will respond, you know, if we can once again, you know, if the Christians would come together and really be faithful to the Word of God and to, uh, again, you know, reclaim just a, a, a clear biblical framework for the church and for the nature of life. Well, just uh, yesterday, I had a long, long telephone conversation with someone whom I regard as one of the most brilliant minds in this country, a uh, man who has held a professorship and is a keen observer of things here and Europe has lectured to very important groups in high places. And he said he was beginning to feel that we were going to get a protracted wake-up call, that the beginning of it might be a collapse of the economy sometime in the fairly near future. But he said it is not going to be a depression like the 29 depression. This will affect every area of life and thought. The culture as a whole will break down. And it will not uh, be put together in a new form in uh, a short time. 
So he said, we may be talking about a few generations going through the ringer, but he said, I believe that is what will force people back to basics, mm -hmm. back to the faith. And I think he's right. Yeah, I do too. People don't learn very quickly, and learn, uh, except by adversity. Um, you might comment on just your opinion. Do you think that this this uh, malaise in the United States is simply because people have had it too good for too long here, um, or is it because because of denominational infighting, or what? What's the what's at the root of this this malaise? I think it parallels the the warning that God gave to Israel and the fulfillment of Israel of going into a land of milk and honey and promise and uh, you know that their their hearts would grow fat and wax cold towards the Lord. You see that um, prophetically in the writings of Robert Louis Dabney as he foretold you know, well over a century ago in one of his comments about this nation that it needed an outpouring of the Holy Spirit like the world had never known because of the wealth. That, you know, what does the scripture say? You know, it's easier for a rich or for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It does have this, this opulence that we have is hard to handle. You know, it, we are a culture now of just covetousness. Look at the media, how it sells things. You know, it wants you to covet. That's how it's marketing. That's its skill of greed. And, um, you know, and this is, I think this is a main contribution to the malaise that we have. Do you think I mean, that, go ahead. Do you think that man is so flawed that he will never overcome this? Only by the grace of God. Certainly. I think one of our great flaws is that uh, for a long time, even conservative Christians have seen things in terms of either political or economic terms and our basic problems as being political or economic. Elect this man president or get this party in Congress or if we can get this constitutional amendment passed. Um, with the fall of communism, it would be easy to think that our, our basic problems were over politically because we hadn't, didn't have fears from the outside. Others think our greatest problems in the future would be economic, and they don't look at in terms of this idea as the conflict of the faith and the advancement of the Christian faith versus other faiths and Christians have not been making any progress in those terms and they don't have any bright spots really on the horizon and that's going to take the Spirit of God before Islam and other faiths that, that really challenge Christians and uh, really have the upper hand in, in you know much of the world from North Africa through Indonesia certainly um, before they're defeated it's going to take a real work of the Spirit you think that communism fell in Russia because of economic reasons? Well, regardless, a lot of Christians, I think, said, hey, our greatest conflict, our greatest problem in the next 25, 50 years is the conflict with communism. That wasn't the greatest problem facing Christians. The greatest problem is not coming economic collapse. Oh, that may have a great impact on our future. That's not our greatest problem. 
our greatest problem is a spiritual problem worldwide, and that's our resp greatest responsibility as Christians is to advance the kingdom of Christ, not good economic times or uh, a particular political system or political freedom. It's to advance the, the kingdom of Christ, and we've been focusing on anti-communism, we've been focusing on free market economics, mm -hmm. and we've been losing sight of the fact as you say, these Christians in 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 Pakistan and Sudan and and other places realize that the conflict is one of faith. We've got countries in Asia which are on the verge of economic collapse, and it's got the federal, the U.S. Federal Reserve, and our government scared death because all of those countries over there have invested the dollars from trade with the United States in U.S. Treasury bonds. And we're going to have to pump 80, the, the taxpayers of this country are going to have to pony up somewhere around $8 billion. They're trying to put together an aid package now to South Korea to bail them out of $80 billion. And they're just, they're, they're putting out the word that the United States is only going to have to come up with 6 to $8 billion. But like everything else that they announce on television, it's a lie. It's going to be probably two-thirds or more of that. And the taxpayers are going to be propping up these Asian countries who are holding these treasury bills. Because if they get into a panic and they start selling U.S. treasury bills, that's the end of the game. But Mark is touching on, you know, not to be uh, funny, but the heart of the issue. It is the heart of man. I mean, you look, what has God promised to his people? You look at Israel, you know, if... If they would trust him and follow him and be jealous for him to do his will, then he would turn a thousand in flight. Mm -hmm. The most important thing for us is to be right with God. That's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. The answer to the, the problems or ills in any country. Our time is up now. Thank you all for listening and thank you, Dad. Oh, thank you for having me here. God bless you all.